Thanks, Nate. What a day of worship. It's unbelievable. Yeehaw, I'm telling you, he's the real deal. He goes by Danny here. He said, I didn't call me Danny. Ye but I was like, yeehaw? He's like, yeah, like yeehaw. I was like, all right, we can say yeehaw here. Yeah, we know, we know yeehaw, absolutely. He's been involved with the launch class here now for a while. I'm telling you, he's just the real deal. You can just sense the Holy Spirit in that guy and just what God's doing in his life. It's just amazing to be around him and be a part of it. So I encourage you to get to know him. I, he was here last Sunday night eating crawfish, and he was, I don't know if it was his first time or not, but he was doing awesome with some crawfish. But his parents are here as well today and some co-workers and, and friends of his as well. Uh, just a really neat experience to see what the Lord's doing around the world, right? And how the nations are coming here as well as us going out to the nations. And I know a lot of folks have been involved with internationals here in Nashville, and there's a lot to be done more with internationals here in Nashville as well. I hope we continue to have a heart for that. So for the message today, we're going to continue to examine this historical narrative of Scripture, right? This is kind of a bit of a, a history lesson, again, uh, from the, the books of Ezra this week and then Nehemiah next week, which are actually one book in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra slash Nehemiah is the same. It's all one entity, one unit. I'm glad Danny Yeehaw wasn't here for me to say all those nice things about him. You'll have to go back and watch the video later. But it's, it's one unit, and really, Ezra and Nehemiah closes out the narrative of the Old Testament. It gives us the, the end of the Old Testament. The, the reality is that Ezra and Nehemiah were the last books written in the Old Testament. They were written probably in the 300s uh, B.C. sometime, which is weird kind of in our Bible. They're towards the beginning of the Bible. It's because, you know, the way that the Christian Bible is arranged, you have the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then you get the historical books, right? You get Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Those are the historical books. And then you get the wisdom literature, which we're uh, going to be into uh, next week in our readings. I can't wait. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you have kind of the, the prophets. You have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah wrote Lamentations and then Ezekiel. And then you have the, the book of the Twelve, the, the minor prophets, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, right? That's the book of the Twelve there. So 39 books. Thank you. Bible drill. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you to my parents who forced me to go to Bible drill as a kid. I still remember it to, uh, to this day. So parents, teach your kids the books of the Bible. They'll, they'll never forget it. So this is a book of history, so let's recap briefly what the history of the Old Testament is. The, the actual historical narrative starts in Genesis 12, right? Genesis 1 through 11 are like prehistory, right? Thousands and thousands of years ago, like four or five thousand plus years back, going back to Adam and Eve, the, the first humans. And then in Genesis 12 is about 2,000. God calls this guy named Abram and says, I'm going to use you to start this family. And this family is going to be my special people. And through my people, I'm going to use this family to bless the entire earth. I'm going to use them as a conduit of blessing. That's going to fulfill my purposes and my mission for the world. And, and he does it. He moves to Canaan. God gives him the promised land, right? And he has kids. He has, uh, finally in his old age, Isaac, baby laughter. And, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel. And they flourish in Canaan. And God's given them all this stuff, and it's great. But then they, they begin to worship idols and, and falsehoods. And so the Lord judges them, and they go to Egypt as slaves. And then the Lord sends Aaron and Moses to miraculously deliver them out of bondage in Egypt. And then 
uh, they wander for 40 years in the desert, then the whole generation dies out, Moses dies, and then Joshua takes over, and Joshua leads them over the Jordan River into Canaan, into the Promised Land, and they start making war against all these massive tribes in Canaan, and they, they wipe them out. God gives them success, and they, they completely take the land of Canaan. And then you have the judges, the period of the judges, Gideon, Samson, Deborah, those type of judges who rule over Israel, but they want a king. So then in 1050, finally, the prophet Samuel anoints King Saul as the first king of Israel. That's the time that we call the United Kingdom, not like the UK, but the, the one kingdom of Israel, right? And you have Saul, he rules for 40 years. Then in 1010, David, the, the man after God's own, own heart, the king like no other, expands the borders of Jerusalem, builds the walls up, destroys the Philistines. And then he rules for 40 years. Then in 970, his son Solomon takes over. And Solomon starts out great, but then he starts to, you know, marry all these crazy foreign women. And he's got thousands of wives, and, and they're leading him astray. And so the Lord judges Israel, and, and it splits into Judah. You only get two tribes in the south where Jerusalem is. You get Benjamin and Judah in the south. And then the ten tribes go up north and start their own kingdom, Israel. That's where we get Samaria. So we're into the part of history now that leads us to the New Testament. This is why the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells matters because of what happens in this time of Israel's history. And of course, the, the, Israel's, uh, the Israelites, again, chased after false gods. They, they, in a time of flourishing and prosperity, they don't thank God and, and follow his ways, but they, they follow pagan gods. They start adopting the culture around them. The, the Baals, they start to worship the gods of the Canaanites. So then God sends the mighty Assyrians into Israel in the north, the northern kingdom, 722. They're, they're wiped out, completely destroyed. Most of them are taken as exiles back to Assyria. And then Judah in the south doesn't fare any better. And in 586 BC, they are wiped out by the new superpower, which is Babylon. And Babylon carries them off into exile. And that's where we find our story today. Ezra and Nehemiah are the next chapter of a, a, a people's story, a people who have been in exile, and now they are being delivered out of exile. What happens next? Ezra and Nehemiah tell us that story about a people who are coming out of exile. I was speaking with one of our deacons this morning who said, you know, this, this applies in so many ways to our own personal lives. Next week when we talk about Nehemiah, we'll see some similarities maybe into how Woodmont can, can rebuild some of our walls as well uh, here. So this story about um, Babylon is that they came in in 586. They were the mightiest nation in the whole ancient Near East, but then their strength starts to fade. They have the Israelites there as slaves, but their strength starts to fade. And then in 539 BC, something amazing happens. King Cyrus, the Persian king, the Persian empire starts to dominate the world. They start marching west, and they're taking out kingdom after kingdom, and they're just conquering everybody. And so when they get to Babylon, the Babylonians don't even fight. They just throw their swords down and say, take it. It's all yours. You know, you're, you guys are way more powerful than we are. And take all that we have, including a couple hundred thousand Hebrew slaves that we have. You know, back in 586, we acquired all these Hebrew slaves. They're yours now, Cyrus. You do what you want to with them. And Cyrus does something pretty incredible with those slaves. So here's the thing with exile, okay? Before we get to Cyrus, when we talk about exile, this is not just 
something meaning like they're moving to a new place, right? You say, oh, like when Morgan and I lived in Alabama for six years, I say, oh, we were in exile for six years. No, that's not really exile. I love Alabama. We love Birmingham. It was a great city. Um, that's not exile, okay? Tomorrow, we're moving to Nashville from Franklin for the first time. That's not exile either. Exile is not moving to a new place. Exile is, in this context, in the context of the Bible, is the forcible, brutal, violent, bloody removal of a people, right, from their homeland after losing a war into a new land where they become forced slaves. They, they become property. They become uh, nothing but an asset, like a spoil of war for the group that came in. It's not just that you lose the war, it's that you lose the war and then you and everyone that you know that's still alive at the end of the war is taken as property, as slaves. It's just about the worst thing that could possibly happen to the people of God, to the chosen ones who are supposed to fulfill his mission in the world. How can they possibly fulfill God's mission if they are slaves, if they're a subjugated people, if they're forced to work for some pagan force? Remember that God had told Abraham that he, his, he was going to use his offspring to bless the entire world. How could that happen if they're slaves? Well, we have some hope about the Babylonian captivity because we've seen an earlier precedent set in Scripture, haven't we? This is not the first time the Israelites have been in exile. This is not the first time the Israelites have been slaves. We know that 1,000 years prior to the Babylonian exile, God's people were in Egypt. They were forced to build the pyramids, right? They were even forced at one point to make bricks without straw, right? They were treated horribly by the Egyptian overlords, right? So here's the question. Back in Exodus, when the Egyptians took Israel captive, did God lose? When the people of God lost, did God lose? Was he shocked? Oh my goodness, they came in and they beat my people? Was he surprised? Was he, uh, you know, in some way, shape, or form taken aback by this? Of course not. In the midst of exile, God remains sovereign. You know what sovereign means? Sovereign means completely and totally in control. It means in charge. If one molecule of this universe is not under the Lord's control, then he is not sovereign. Because the Lord is sovereign, everything is under his control. So why did he send them into exile if he was in control? Well, exile for God's people was, as C.S. Lewis puts it, a severe mercy. It was a severe mercy. In his great love for his children, in his great mercy, he chose to put them in a place where he could shape them more fully into the people that he has called them to be. In his mercy, he has spared them from the disastrous cliff they were headed for. In his mercy, he sent them into a place where his chisel could do its work on shaping them. And yes, when the chisel hits, it hurts. It's, no one wants to go into exile. No one wants to be a slave. No one wants to be property. But if the Lord's in control, then that changes everything, right? It changes everything. So what we see is that it was painful for these people, but it was done out of love. Because of God's great love as a good, good father on Father's Day, as we talk about dads, as a father, he shapes us. 
He lovingly and, and carefully prunes us like a wise and tender gardener. John 15, verse 1 and 2, what did Jesus say? He told his disciples, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser, the one who trims the vines. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, that's God's people, what does he do for us? Does he just celebrate us and pet us on the head? No, he prunes us. He prunes God's people. So why? So that they may bear more fruit. That's what a loving father does. He disciplines his children in order that they may thrive, that they may flourish, that they may more fully serve him and live into his purpose for their lives. Many of you um, know that this is not forever when you're in exile, right? It's a season that we all go through hard times in our lives. So when Judah gets carried off into exile in Babylon, we know it's not forever. As they slaved away in chains, they probably recalled the hopeful words of the prophets. The prophets who foretold that God would indeed send them into exile, but it would not be forever. It would only be for a season. They remembered that promise from Jeremiah 29:11. Many of you know this verse. It says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. So you've probably heard this verse used out of context. If you came to our most misused verses in the Bible study on Wednesday night, then you're nodding your head right now because you know where I'm going with this. You know, you've heard preachers say, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. If you just send in a $1,000 check to Nathan Parker and sow that seed in faith, then you will get that new Mercedes that you've been looking for, right? Just sow that seed, brother, sister. You know, that's, that's not what this verse is talking about, though, is it? What's the context of this verse? Any text without a context is just a pretext for whatever you want to say. The context is it's a promise to people in exile. This is written to people in Babylon. This is written to God's people. The verse immediately before it says, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. God is faithful. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. We know the New Testament says all God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. All God's promises. Do you believe God's promises today? Do you believe his faithfulness today? I will bring you back to this place for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. The word for welfare there is shalom, by the way. It means flourishing. It means peace and prosperity to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek my face, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. Who drove them there? Was it the Egyptians? No. Was it the Babylonians? No. God says, where I have driven you. I'm in control. I put you there during that season. I, I will bring you back from the place that I've driven you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Wow. So was God faithful in Babylon? Did he do what he said he would do back in Jeremiah 29? The big question for us is, is he faithful today? Can we rely on him now? 
Can we trust him fully with all of our hearts and all that we are to do that which he says he will do? If so, it will change everything. If not, then we are without hope and we are here in vain. Let's look at Ezra chapter 1 to see what God did for his people in Babylon, if he was faithful or not. Verse 1, chapter 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, what we just read, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, the mightiest king in the entire ancient Near East, the most powerful person in this whole time period of the, the mightiest empire for the next 200 years, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord Jehovah Yahweh, the one true God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He's charged me, a pagan, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, because it's a little town that you've probably never heard of. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem. It's on a hill up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah again. And rebuild the house of the Lord, the temple. Worship is primary. Rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the one true God. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor, those of you that made it through exile, let each survivor, if you lived, in whatever place he sojourns, sojourners and exiles. We talked about that on Wednesday night some. We're going to talk more about that on Wednesday night. Be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the, that's the two tribes that were in Judah, and the priests and the Levites, those who worked in the temple, and everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. The Lord is the one who's doing this. It's clear. When Yehow was upstairs, he said, the Lord, you can feel the Spirit right now. The Lord was stirring his heart. I hope you've had that feeling before of the Lord stirring your heart. God is faithful. He doesn't leave his people in exile forever to be judged or to be pruned or to be chiseled away forever. If he did, there'd be nothing left of us, right? It's only for a season. We have to believe this. We have to believe also that God wants what it is best for us. He wants what's best for us. He loves us. You know, Jesus told his, his, his crowd of followers, how many of you as fathers, you know, when your son asks for bread, gives him a snake or a stone? You don't do that. You love your kids. If you, being a, a, a horrible human father like me who trips over my feet every day, you know, can know how to give your kids good gifts, how much more does your father know how to give you good gifts? God loves you. Believe that today. And he wants what's best for you. So the, the mighty King Cyrus, who was the most powerful king, was just a pawn, just a little pawn in God's big plan to deliver his people, right? Even though he was this so powerful, you know, king, the most famous king in the land, he was just a little part of what God was doing to restore his people. The prophet Isaiah had, had prophesied this way back, uh, you know, hundreds of years before this. Chapter 45, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him. 
You ever seen like, I'll take, you know, Jude's hand sometime and pretend to hit May with it or something? That's kind of what God's doing here. Don't do that. But you know what I'm saying? God's grabbing Cyrus's hand and he's using it here to, to accomplish his purposes. So he says, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, the gates may not be closed. The Lord's anointed, it says, a pagan king. Later in verse 13, I've stirred up in him, in Cyrus, righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He will build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. He's not doing it for price. He's doing it because I'm making him do it. God's always in control, right? which means he uses whoever he wants to use, no matter how powerful they may seem, no matter how pagan they may seem. That one's hard for me sometimes. Why is God using that person? They're horrible. <laughs> oh, right, because God uses whoever he wants to. So Ezra and Nehemiah tell this story of the return of the exiles, and they leave in three waves, three main groups. The first group is led by Zerubbabel. That's one of my favorite words to say ever, Zerubbabel. And then the second group is led by Ezra, which we're going to read about in a second. And then the third is led by Nehemiah, which we'll hear about next week. The first wave of exiles is covered in chapters 1 through 6 of, of Ezra. And then they, they do the first things first. They rebuild the temple so that God's worship can be restored there. And then Ezra, about a generation later, about 70 years after Zerubbabel, he leads a group sent by the new king, Artaxerxes, sends Ezra and his crew out to Jerusalem again. Ezra was a scribe. He was kind of like a, a Jewish legal scholar, but he was also a descendant of Aaron, so he was a Levite. He was a priest and like a, a Jewish lawyer. <coughs> Excuse me. Look at chapter 7, verses 6 through 10. This Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. That will come in handy, right? As he's trying to lead a new group of exiles back into Jerusalem, learning how to be Jewish all over again, it's good to know what God's commandments are when you try to, to teach God's people how to be God's people all over again. And then the king granted him, it says in verse 6, all that he asked for the hand of, his of the Lord his God was on him. So like Cyrus, Ezra was a, a mighty tool in, in the hand of God to accomplish his purposes. There he went all, also up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. I pray the good hand of God is on me and on you. That's when we are at our best. For Ezra had set his heart, verse 10, to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. This is a great verse for all of you who, like me, dare to teach the things of God to other people. If you're going to teach the things of God, first study it, then commit to do it, live it. Only then can you possibly teach it, it says here. Study it, do it then teach it in that order. It will not work if you don't do it. I was told in seminary, who you are in the pulpit on Sundays, who you've been all week. You got to live it out all week long. It still haunts me. <laughs> so, of course, Ezra has this amazing ministry because the good hand of God is on him. In the, this newly rebuilt Jerusalem, he ministers and he restores perfect order and, and worship to, to God's people. It's a new beginning. 
One commentary I read said this was the most Jewish time in Israel's history. They were the most faithful they'd been. There's, there's no pagan worship here. All these returned exiles were fully committed to following the ways of God that were listed in the, in the law to the best of their abilities. This writer said that this humble little group of, of exiles, this remnant, resembled a little flock more like a church than anything else. They had dwindled down to a faithful remnant, and they resembled a church more than a kingdom like Saul and David and Solomon had. That's the context in which Jesus enters the scene in the New Testament. In Ezra chapter 9, verse 13, to sum it all up, Ezra prays, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, let's admit, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, O God, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this. After all we've been through, he says, because of our own sin and our, our own guilt, because of all the hardships we went through, all the people that died in the, in the conquest of Israel, watching the temple be destroyed by the Babylonians, after all we've been through as exiles and slaves, we see that God has been faithful. He has fulfilled his promises. He has shown us great mercy. He's treated us better than we deserved, not worse. How many of you know someone who just loves to wallow in self-pity? Oh, poor me. Life's horrible. I'm such a victim. Why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. You deserve so much worse. Are those people happy people? Are they flourishing? Are they thriving? No. Who are the happiest people you know? Ones who are going through hard times. You know, every mission trip I go on, when we go somewhere that's full of poverty, people always say, no matter if it's teenagers or older people, they're so happy. They have nothing, but they're so happy. We learn to wallow in self-pity. We listen to advertising that says, you're miserable unless you have this or this and this, right? They don't hear those messages every day, right? The happiest people I know are the ones who say, God, you've treated us better than we deserve. Thank you. We love you. We're grateful. That's how I want to live. That's how God's people thrive best. After all that's come upon us, you've punished us less than our iniquities deserved. And you've given us such a remnant as this wonderful little flock. Oh, that we would be so grateful here at Woodmont for our flock and for what God has done here in this place. After we see all the hardships that, that they've been through, God remains faithful. He has not abandoned them and he has not abandoned us today. Why does God do this? Why does he drive us to our knees in prayer? Because that's where we find true power. That's where we find true healing. That's where we find true restoration and true spiritual meaning and purpose for our lives. He allows us to be broken, right? So that we'll be more and more conformed as he puts the pieces back together to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. So again, why, why go through all this pruning, this chiseling? Why go through it in the first place? Is it all really necessary? How can the hardships in my life possibly be a good thing? I can't see how they could possibly be good sometimes. Well, maybe it's a better thing to be broken and then put back together than to just have been whole the whole time. There's a great song by Andrew Peterson. He says, now I can see that the world is charged. That's a quote from a Gerard Manley Hopkins poem. 
I can see that the world's charged. It's glimmering with promises written in a script of stars dripping from prophet's lips. But still, my thirst is never slaked. I'm hounded by a restlessness. I'm eaten by this endless ache. But still, I will give thanks for this because I can see it in the seas of wheat. I can feel it when the horses run. It's howling in the snowy peaks. I I can feel it in the midnight sun, just behind a veil of wind, a million angels waiting in the wing, a swirling storm of cherubim making ready for the reckoning. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Oh, how long? How long till the Lord comes back and sends His angel armies to, to stop all this injustice and cruelty in our world? And the children, he says, sing on, sing on. And then he says, when the world is new again and the children of the king are ancient in their youth again, maybe it's a better thing, a better thing to be more than merely innocent. Jason Isbell has an album called Something More Than Free, right? More than innocent. But to be broken and then redeemed by love. Maybe this old world is bent, but it's waking up. And I'm waking up. You know, this is what hope in a fallen world looks like. It looks like God's people standing up together and saying to the world, God is faithful. He is good. He will fulfill His promises to the world and to His people. Maybe you feel like you're in exile today. Maybe you feel like God's abandoned you or that you're being pruned or chiseled for an exceptionally long period or a long season. Well, here's the the lesson for us today about God's faithfulness to a people who are in exile. The truth is nobody gets out of this life cleanly, right? We all go through hard times. We all suffer. We all lose people that we love. I know many of you today is a hard day for you because you, you grieve the loss of your dad. We all get sick, right? We all feel pain and hurt. We all wrestle with real, very real questions, old and young people both, about the meaning of this life and and what the future holds, both in this life and the next. And and those very real questions lead to to answers, right? We do more than just ask questions. We begin to, to form answers about these things. What do you do with suffering then? You know, nihilism is a, a philosophy that, that concludes there's no meaning to our suffering. It's just pointless. It just happens. You know, the fatalist, fatalist philosophy says that it's just the result of impersonal kind of coincidences and a, an impersonal providence. The Eastern religions, Eastern mystic religions deny that suffering's real. It's just an illusion. And you try to transcend the material world of suffering around us. But Christians push back against all of that. We don't subscribe to any of those philosophies, do we? We speak into the world the very real and bold truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the world that does not deny suffering, but that brings hope to this world. We say to the world that suffering is the result of brokenness that comes through sin. It's it's the result of living in a fallen and bent and broken world. But we also speak the truth that Christ has come to restore the world, to make all things new again, just as we talked about with Yehow and his baptism today. 
We do live in a fallen world with the effects of the fall all around us, thorns that infest the ground, but he has come to make the blessing known far as the curse is found. We choose to believe in our hearts the truth of Romans 8, 28. You know this verse. We know in our hearts, we know. This is not just an intellectual knowledge. This is a trust. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to his purpose, all things work together for good for those of us who are called according to his purpose. We as Christians believe that no matter what we go through in this life, it's meant by God for our good and for ultimately for his glory. God will be glorified in our sufferings and in our hardships, and it's for our good. We must believe that because that belief sets us apart as God's people. That belief puts suffering in, in context, in the light of its eventual and permanent end. That suffering will one day end. Death itself will die when it's thrown into the lake of fire. So we also look upon suffering in our world. We question it. We experience it as a people whose hope is fixed on the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he accomplished on the cross. The greatest example ever given of something horrible happening that God used for his glory is what we're about to celebrate at this table this morning. The death of Jesus Christ was the most heinous crime ever committed on earth. The death of Jesus Christ, his murder, has also produced the greatest good that has ever happened on this earth as well. The cross itself was a kind of severe mercy, right? As C.S. Lewis says. The severe mercy, I read a quote from Russ Ramsey who wrote a, a book about the severe mercy. He said, the Christian faith doesn't center on a mercy without severity. Just kind of, oh, all people are good. You're all fine. Neither does it center on a severity devoid of mercy. We're not judged by our works, thank God. But it centers on a divine love that marries severity and mercy in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is our hope, and we dare not look away. Look to the cross today. Through the cross of Christ, God has forged a way for us to be free from the bondage of sin. He did not dismiss sin. He didn't turn a blind eye to it. He didn't let anything slide. Neither did he inflict the punishment on us that we all deserved by being born sinful. But God's love and God's justice meet in the cross of Jesus Christ. That is our hope. And we remember that truth and we celebrate it today at this table. You know, the first Christians called this meal the, the love feast. They called it a love feast. But we need to also remember that this is a justice feast as well. That in the cross of Christ, sin was judged forever on our behalf. And we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns that the cross of Jesus was the greatest example of both love and justice. So the choir is going to lead us in a time of reflection now. We know that uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that we need to examine ourselves before we partake in the Lord's Supper. So I would ask you during this time to search your heart, to examine. Maybe you've been in this time of exile. Maybe you're one of those people who says, why me, God? You've been self-pitying yourself. Maybe you, the, the, the hammer blows have been too painful for you. This morning, I, I challenge you to, to look at the, all the suffering you've been through through the cross of Christ, where God's love and justice 
perfectly meet. Let's pray. Lord God, we can never thank you enough for what you've done for us on the cross, but I pray that during this time, you would give us a sense of gospel reality. Help us to understand the truth that your love and justice perfectly kiss each other on the cross. Help us to understand that you are a just God, but you are also a merciful and loving God who is always faithful. May we trust you more and more and live more fully into this gospel reality during this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.